If you have your Bible with you, let's turn to Matthew chapter 21. And we're going to be in verses 28 through 45. We're actually going to cover two parables today. uh, The parable of the two sons and the parable of the tenants. And the reason we're going to cover two is because they are told back to back, uh, one right after the other. They also are... They mean the same thing, they have the same point, the same application, they're spoken in the same context, so they, they belong together. There's really no, no use in, in breaking them up. So the parable of the two sons and the parable of the tenants, Matthew 21, 28 through 45. We are winding down our study of the parables. Uh, we will finish up next week. will be the last one, and then um, week after that we will start something uh, new, which I'm really excited about. Um, so uh, we, we hope you guys are as well. All right, uh, let's begin, as we always do, with some context for these two parables. Now, we weren't here last week because of Christmas, but you remember the two or three weeks before that, we spent a lot of time in, in Luke chapter 16 and Luke chapter 18 uh, talking about some different parables there. And, and if you'll remember, I told you in those weeks and during those parables that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. He was, uh, he was on, on his way. It was coming toward Passion Week. It was the last week of his, of his life here on earth. And, uh, he was heading that way. But now, as we come to Matthew chapter 21, the time has come for him to die. Uh, he's, there's been a lot of, of conflicts between him and the Pharisees, uh, over the last few weeks and over the last few months. But now he's got to pick one final fight, and this final fight will be his last one, and it will actually get himself get him killed. It's Palm Sunday. Uh, the city is packed with people. They're all there for the Passover. They've they've come not only from uh, surrounding uh, areas in Israel. They've come from other countries. There's an excitement in the air. There's a lot of talk about the Messiah. There's just all this stuff has been brewing. Jesus has been ministering for three years, and the whole city is stirred up at his coming. And so if you look uh, back down a little bit in verses 9 through 11, it tells us this, the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. By the way, Son of David is a term for the Messiah. They're saying, Hosanna to the Messiah. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this guy? And the crowd says, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So you got to understand, there's just this, 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 uh, this huge stirring in the city. Everybody's excited. It's Passover. It's, uh, Jesus is there. It's just, I mean, the whole crowd of the whole city is stirred up. Now, Mark tells us that on that day, Mark eleven eleven. he comes into Jerusalem and he actually goes to the temple. But he, it's kind of late in the day, so he doesn't do anything. And that night he leaves and he goes across into Bethany. Bethany is about a mile or two away. It's kind of like a suburb of Jerusalem. That's, of course, where Mary and Martha and Lazarus live. More than likely, he left that night and went and stayed with uh, with Mary and Martha and and Lazarus. So he, he comes in on Palm Sunday and he leaves and he goes over to Bethany. Now this is the height of his popularity. It's only going to go downhill, uh, from there. Now Mark 11, 12 through 19 says this. On the following day when they came from Bethany, 
they came to Jerusalem. So the next day, Monday morning, he comes back out of Bethany and he comes over to Jerusalem and he goes back in the temple and this is when he begins to drive out the money changers. Okay, we see this in Mark 11, 12 through 19. So he comes back over Monday morning or sometime Monday, he goes back into the temple. He, he, he drives out the money changers. He drives out those who are buying and selling in the temple. Now, Matthew 21, 14 through 7 says, after that, it says, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. So he's, let's, let's get this, we want to make sure we know the context. He comes in Palm Sunday. They're saying Hosanna to the Messiah. The whole crowd is stirred up. People from all over the world are there uh, for that for that week. He, he leaves that night, goes to Bethany, comes back the next day, drives out the money changers in the temple. And, and the temple has to be packed. And then he stays there and he begins to teach and he begins to heal and crowds are coming to him. And it says the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. They were indignant. They couldn't believe he was doing those things. And they said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus says, yeah, have you never read that out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he left out of the city and he went back to Bethany, probably once again to Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house, and he stayed there. Now at this point... You need to understand something. The religious leaders are in a state of panic. You see, in their mind, they see a basically a revolution taking place. They see all these people are flocking to Jesus. All these people are, are calling Jesus uh, the Messiah. And, and it's like this revolution is, is coming, and they understand we got to do something to stop this. This is getting out of control. They're calling him Messiah. He's he's not. He's going into the temple. He's he's cleaning out the money changers, which is our source of money. And remember, Pharisees loved what? They love money. And so the next day, when he comes back again, they immediately confront him. Let's look at verse twenty-three. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching. And, and I want you to watch what they said to him. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Now, I want you to notice the issue that they have with him is authority. Okay? They, they, don't, they don't come to him and say, man, these healings you're doing are great. Right? They want to know who gave you the authority to do this. Who gave you the authority to teach? Who gave you the authority to heal? Who gave you... The authority. Why are they so worried about authority? Well, here's the reason. Because when it came to religion in Israel, the Pharisees had the authority. They were the ones who had always been in authority. They were the ones who controlled the temple. They were the ones who gave people franchises to set up the money changers. They were the ones that, that took part of the till. Right? They were the ones that ordained priests. They were the ones who authorized rabbis to teach. See, they were the ones that controlled all that. Nothing happened in religion in Israel without their say-so. They were the ones in authority. You see, when it came to religion in Israel, you just didn't go in and do what you wanted to do. You didn't just go teach on your own without consulting the authorities or the, or the, uh, the Pharisees and the scribes and the elders. You just didn't do that. 
You, you didn't just exercise your own authority without consulting them, but that's exactly what Jesus did. That's exactly what He did. You see, the word authority, when you think about it, it it's a strong word, isn't it? It, it? Even as we say it today, we understand authority today just like they did back then. It denotes permission. It denotes privilege. It means power. It means you've got rule or control or, or influence over someone. This is true in the home. We have authority in the home with parents and children. It's true in our schools with you've got principals and teachers and then students. It's true in our government. We've got the president and the Supreme Court and the, and, and the House and the Senate. Uh, it's true in the church. We've got positions of authority in the church. It, it's true on your job. You've got bosses and employees. We understand this idea of authority very, very well. But see, Jesus comes along and He makes this claim that nobody else has ever made. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus said to me, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now listen, I say this all the time. You cannot say Jesus is a good man. He's either who He says He is or He's insane. There is no in-between. He's either God, the Son of God, the Redeemer and the Savior, or He's a lunatic. Only a lunatic would stand... If, if somebody walked into Winn-Dixie today and stood up and said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, what would we do? We'd call the hospital. We'd call 911. we got a crazy guy here. Because He's either crazy or He's who He's... There is no middle ground with Jesus. He doesn't give us that option. There is no... It's, he's either who He says He is or He's insane. It's one or the other. He's not just a good man. He's not just a rabbi that's gone a little bit off. He's not, there's no in-between with him. All authority. You pick any authority, you got presidents, kings, uh, czars, whatever. He says, I'm over all of them. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Let's think about this. He had the authority. He came to this earth, he walked into a temple, he stepped up on a mountain, and he taught whatever he wanted to teach, and he said, this is truth. you understand that? Whatever just came out of his mouth, he said, this is truth. You must submit to this. Now, again, there is no middle ground. Either he's teaching truth or he's insane. He had authority to teach whatever he wanted to teach. He had authority to heal. He had authority to cast out demons. He had authority to forgive sin. He has authority, if you go on and read, to determine who becomes a child of God. That's His authority. He has authority to give life. He has authority to raise from the dead. He has authority to give eternal life. He's, he's, he's the man. There is nobody like Him. But His authority was such that He never consulted with religious leaders on anything. He didn't go to them and say, hey, I'm going to be teaching this doctrine. What, what do you guys think about that? He never, he never asked them for their approval. He said, hey, I'm going to go cast out these demons. Are you guys okay with that? He never consulted with them. He never did any of that. He completely ignored them. And I'm going to tell you, it drove them crazy. It drove them insane because they had authority. They were used to having that power. So here comes this guy along, and, and, and he, doesn't, he doesn't consult with them. And it's completely unacceptable to them. 
That's why throughout his ministry, he's always in conflict with the religious authorities. Always. And now as you come to Matthew 21, you know, there's always been these conflicts, right? I mean, at the very beginning, he goes into the temple, he opens the scroll... And he says, uh, he says, this day the scripture is fulfilled. And that day they, they wanted to kill him. They took him to a mountain, a cliff, and was going to throw him over. And he says he passed through. Over and over in the Bible, you see it, he passed through the midst of them. He passed through because it wasn't his time. But see, now it is his time. This week is his time to die. There will be no more passing through. There, there will be no more getting out of it because his time has now come. Let's read that again, Matthew 21, 23. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him and as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? Now, what, are they, what does he mean by these things? Well, teaching, no doubt. Do you remember in the Bible over and over he teaches the people and it says to them, they were astonished at his teaching because he taught as one having what? Authority. You see, every other teacher that came along always quoted somebody else. They quoted, Rabbi so-and-so said. Rabbi so-and-so said. Moses said. Jesus said, I say to you. See, he didn't quote anybody else. He says, I say to you. You've heard it said, but I say to you this. he He just taught what he wanted to teach, and he said, this is truth. So that's what he means. He taught as one having his own authority. He didn't have to refer to anybody else. He just referred to himself. So his teaching, of course, is one of these things they can't understand. But also the cleansing the temple. Man, who in the world gave you authority to drive out the money changers? Right? Who, who gave you authority to come into the temple and have people call you, or, or come into the city and have people call you Messiah? Who, who gave you the authority to do all these things that you're doing. Now, here we come to verses 24 to 25. Jesus answered them. He said, i tell you what I'll do. I will ask you one question. And if you give me the answer to this question that I'm going to ask you, then I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Okay? And here's the question. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? Matthew 21, 25, and they discussed it among themselves, saying, well, if we say from heaven, he's going to say to us, why didn't you believe him? You see, with one little question, Jesus puts them between a rock and a hard place. He puts them in the proverbial pickle. You see, if they say John's ministry was from God, it was from heaven, then they have a problem because John pointed at Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John is the one that pointed at Jesus and said, He must increase and I must decrease. So if they say John is from God, Jesus will say, Why didn't you believe him when he pointed at me? Then why didn't you believe him when he testified of me? So they, basically, if they say John is from heaven, that would mean they are confirming that Jesus is the Messiah. So there's no way they're going to do that. Verse 26, and they're thinking among themselves, but if we say from man then we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John is a prophet. See, everybody believed John the Baptist was a prophet. All the crowds believed that. They all revered him as a prophet. So if they come out and say, well, he wasn't from heaven, he was just, he, 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 he was just a, a man out in the wilderness, dressed funny, eating funny food, and saying funny things, 
If we say that, the crowds might turn against us and say, well, who are you to say that? They may question our authority, and they couldn't have that. So they, of course, take the coward's way out. Verse 27, so they answered Jesus, we don't know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you what by what authority I do these things. Now, I have read that over and over and over throughout my lifetime, as I'm sure you have. But I don't want you to miss what just happened. You see, in effect, Jesus just turned off the light of revelation. No more. You see, these guys had rejected truth again and again and again and again. And with one final rejection, Jesus says, I'm done. It's over. I got nothing else to say to you. And he turns off the light of truth to those men. Does everybody see that? In Matthew 23, if you look two chapters later, he will point at them and say, You serpents, you generations of snakes, how will you escape the damnation of hell? In other words, you can't. It's over. You've been judged. Matthew 23, 38, he tells them, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Because it's over. Later on, he's confronted before Cephas, the high priest, in Matthew 26, and he has a chance to to, to speak for himself. And he said absolutely nothing. Because the light had been turned out. The light of revelation to to those chief priests and those scribes and those Pharisees and those elders... It was turned off. It's over. He never said another word of truth to them. He never said another word of defense of who He was. It was over. Later on, Matthew 27, He's accused once again by the chief priests and the elders, and it says again, He answered nothing. Now, as I, do you feel the gravity of that? Do you feel the hopelessness of that? The, 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 the finality of that? That these men have come to a point where they've heard truth over and over and over now for years and they've rejected it again and again and again and again and finally Jesus says, I'm not going to tell you anymore. It's over. It's done. From that point on, those men were destined for hell and there was no way out of it. It's over. See, they, see, they had so long rejected Him that He finally rejected them. It's what Genesis says in 6.3. God says, My Spirit is not going to always strive with men. In Hosea, there's a place where God says, Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. Leave him alone. It's over. See, this doesn't go on forever. We sit here and think, Well, I'm not going to do it today, but maybe next week. But there's no guarantee there is a next week. Today may be it. Jesus may turn out the light and say, that's it, you've rejected me for the very last time. Now that is our context, okay? That brings us to today's parables. And what I want you to see about these parables, these parables are not meant at all to try to get these Pharisees to repent. They are not parables of of revealed truth. They are parables of judgment. The two parables that Jesus is about to give, have He's not calling them, you need to repent. No, these are parables of judgment and judgment alone. Let's look at the first one, the parable of the two sons. Matthew 21, 28 through 30. By the way, nothing's changed. He's still talking to those, those scribes, those elders, those Pharisees who said 
He said, answer this question and I'll tell you by what authority. And they wouldn't answer the question. He said, well, I'm not going to tell you anything else. And then he immediately launches into two parables. The first one in 28 through 30. He asked him, he says, what do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he said, I ain't going to do it. I will not. Very disrespectful. But afterward, he changed his mind and he went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, what? Sir? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I'll go. Very respectful. But then he didn't go. You see, Jesus uses a father and son in this parable because it's a relationship we all understand. It's a relationship that has authority and, and obedience in it, right? We all understand that. Nothing changes with that. It's the same today as it was, as it was then. And Jesus says, you got these two sons, and one says he will not obey, but later he repents, he changes his mind, and he does obey. The other one, very respectful, calling his father, sir, says, yes, sir, I'll go, but it, he never does. And listen, guys, if there's anything we've learned out of our study of the parables over the last nine months is this. It's not what you say, it's what you do that counts. We've seen it over and over and over again. He does not care what you say. He cares what you do. It's what you do that counts. Matthew 21, 31, Jesus asked this question. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, well, the first one, of course, right? And Jesus said, truly I say to you, Pharisees, truly I say to you, scribes, I say to you, listen, there's no doubt who he's talking to, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes will go into the kingdom of God before you do. See, this is judgment, guys. This is not... You need to repent. This is pure, unadulterated judgment. It's over. I tell you truly that tax collectors and harlots will go into the kingdom before you do. See, he he leaves no doubt that the parable is about them. They are the second son. They are the ones that dress in the nice robes and they use the right language and they tithe every little penny they've got. They, they do all those things, and they're not going to heaven. They're going to hell because they say the right things, but they never obey. They never do the will of God. They are the second son. Then he goes on in verse 32. Watch what he says to them. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. But tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your mind and believe him. What's he saying? He's saying, you saw a a righteous man with a righteous message and you didn't believe him. And then you saw tax collectors and harlots repent and have their lives transformed and changed and you didn't even believe after seeing that. You see, the fact is, they rejected the message and then they rejected the power that validated that message. See, they are indicted twice. They didn't believe the righteous man with a righteous message and even when that message changed people's lives, they still would not believe. And you see, folks, that's, that's still true today. 
There are people who sit in this church Sunday after Sunday, and they hear truth preached to them, and they say, maybe next week, maybe next year, that's just really not for me. And you see, they reject the message, and that's their first indictment. And then those same people go out into their jobs and they go home to their families and they've got people they see on a daily basis whose lives have been changed by the gospel. They know people. We all know people. I can point to, and they were in darkness and now they're in light. They were living one lifestyle and now their lifestyle has been changed. And if we were... In other words, not only is the message out there for us, but but the power that validates the message has been shown to us, and if we reject them both, we're doubly indicted. And that's what he said to the Pharisees. It reminds me of John chapter 10. Jesus said this, even if you don't believe me, believe the works. Remember that? Even if you don't believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that I come from the Father. See, when you reject the message and you reject the power All that's left is one thing, and that's judgment. That's that's all that's left. And that's what he's talking to today, to the Pharisees. That's the message we see. It is the final word. It's a word of judgment. It's a word of condemnation. It's a word of hell. It's a word of hopelessness. It's terrible. It's a terrible message. But it comes because people have continually and continually and continually rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, immediately, Jesus turns to a second parable. No pause, no anything. And it's called the parable of the two tenants. Verse 33. Jesus says this, Hear another parable, in case you didn't get that one. Hear this parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard, and he put a fence around it, and he dug a wine press in it, and he built a tower, and he leased it to tenants, and he went into another country. So here's this guy... And, and this is another parable about vineyards. And as we've said oftentimes, in Israel in that day, the, the, there were vineyards everywhere. I haven't been there today. I haven't been to Israel. I don't know how many vineyards are there today. But in that day, they were everywhere. <clears throat> and so it, this was something that everybody would have understand. And here's a guy. He plants a vineyard. He puts a fence around it. This is for protection. To protect it, he puts a, a wine press in it. He puts a tower for storage, for security, whatever the case may be. In other words, he builds everything into this that this thing needs to be um, successful. So this is a very common theme that they would understand. And so, again, this, this owner takes great care. He builds this business, right? He does everything this business needs to, to, to be successful, to produce a quality product. Then he leases it out, and he moves away into another country. In verse 24, 34, when the season for fruit drew near... He sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. So undoubtedly, there's some kind of uh, deal or there's some kind of um, uh, uh, a relationship here where they're doing all the work. He's, he owns the property. He owns the vineyard. So at the end of the day, he keeps a portion. They keep a portion, and he gets a part of it, right? It's a, it's a, a, a common uh, uh, deal here. So he sends his servants to get his share. Verse 35 to 36. And the tenants took his servants... And they beat one, they killed another, and they stoned another one. So he sends more servants, even more than the first, and they did the same thing to them. Now, obviously, these tenants have turned out to be some some bad people. Not only will they not honor 
their agreement, they unnecessarily kill and maim the people that he sends. They didn't, by the way, they didn't have to do that. Some of them they beat. Some of them they just said, let's just kill them. I mean, these are just bad guys. They're bad people. They're evil people. Not, and I want you to see that. Not, they're not just dishonest. Right? They're not just trying to get out of the... They, they're, they're mean. They're, they're evil. They're bad to the, to the core. Verse 37 through 39. Finally, he sent his son to them saying, I know they'll respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, Hey, this is the heir. Let's kill him and we'll take his inheritance. And so they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Now listen, I want you to understand how evil these guys are. They knew exactly who the son was. This wasn't a misunderstanding. They didn't look at him and say, This is another servant. They said, That's the son. That's the Messiah. That's the promised one. They knew exactly who he was. See, this murder is premeditated. They thought it through. They're, they're figured, they're, they're, they go through it and say, if we kill him, this is what will happen. They knew then that they would control everything. Now, in a very traditional rabbinic way, Jesus has led them down the path with a story, and then he asked them to conclude the story themselves. Verse 40, Jesus says, When the owner of the vineyard comes, what will you think he'll do to those tenants? And they said to him, verse 41, He'll put those wretches to a miserable death, and he'll let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit in their season. See, I want you to notice the two things that come out of their own mouth. And the first one is judgment, and the second one is replacement. He will judge those tenants and He'll replace them with others. He'll destroy those wicked men and He'll leave His vineyard to others. Judgment and replacement. They've said it with their own mouth. They've concluded the parable. Now next, Jesus does something very interesting. He's going to use an Old Testament scripture to explain the parable to them. Remember, they love the Old Testament. They love Moses. They, they, they love David. They love the Old Testament. They swear they live by that. So he's going to use a psalm of David to explain that parable. And specifically, he's going to use Psalm 118, 22 to 23. Look at verse 42. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures, and this is where he's quoting Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, if you go back, and you can go do this later, if you go back to Psalm 118 and you just open and read it and say, what is the subject of Psalm 118? You'll find out the subject of Psalm 118, it's all about Israel. Israel is the stone which the empire builders of the world have rejected. See, they, they saw Israel as insignificant, right? That's why country after country would conquer it and just use it for their own ends and their own means, right? They, they, they completely disregarded her. She was something to be conquered. She was something to be used. She was something to be done with as they saw fit. They were just off on their own, on their own business. And by the way, this is still true today. The world today continues to reject Israel but she will not go away. 
she will not go away. She can't go away. I remember you've heard me tell this story before. There was a king several hundred years ago, and he, 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 he was struggling with, with Christianity, and he, said, he asked one of his main court guys, he said, I want evidence for Christianity. And one of the first pieces of evidence they brought to him was Israel. 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 She won't go away. Isn't it crazy that we read this Bible, and, and it's all about Israel and all this, and 2,000 years later, the United Nations... It, it, it won't go away, folks. And that's why they hate Israel, because Israel is a sign God is real. God's not dead. He's still alive. He's still working. He's still, it's just a sign in front of the whole world, and they hate it. They want it gone. They want it eradicated. But it can't be. It won't be. That's because this small nation continues to it, it, it is, Jesus told the woman at the well, salvation is of the Jews. Jesus comes, is a Jew. He comes out of that Jewish nation. It comes out of Israel. It's a sign. And it will not and cannot go away. So Psalm 118, if you go back and read in the Old Testament, it's about Israel. But like many Old Testament scriptures, it has a double meaning. And this double meaning is revealed to us in the New Testament. For example, Acts chapter 4, 10 through 11. I believe this is Peter. He said this, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by the builders and has become the cornerstone. So in the New Testament, the apostles look back and they see that psalm and say, that's talking about Jesus. That's talking about the Messiah that you crucified. So why does Jesus quote this Old Testament psalm? Well, remember, the men in the parable took the son out and killed him. And the rejection of the son in the parable is the same as the rejection of Jesus Christ by the religious leaders of Israel. See, Jesus is using the same scripture they affirm to believe. They all say they believe it. And he's using that to explain the parable. You see, this parable is pretty straightforward. The tenants are the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the, the, the elders. The servants that he sends over and over and over are the prophets. And they kill them, and they kill them, and they kill them. The son, of course, is Christ. The owner is God. The vineyard is the, is the kingdom. See, the parable is so clear. Israel is chosen to receive God's blessing. And when they drift into sin, God sends His prophets whom they hated. They despised them. They killed them. They abused them. They wouldn't listen to anything they had to say. And finally, God says, I'll send my son. Surely, they'll respect him. Surely, they'll listen to him. And they take him outside the gate of the city and they kill him. They take him outside the gate. See, it hadn't happened yet. It's going to happen in about three days. But he's already prophesying, you're going to take the son, you're going to take him outside the vineyard, you're going to take him outside the gate, and you're going to kill him. Just like what happened in this, in this parable. And finally, just in case they didn't get it, verse 43, Jesus says, therefore I tell you, I tell you, scribes, I tell you, elders, I tell you, Pharisees, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. See, there's the judgment and given to a people producing its fruit. There's the replacement. See, in case they're wondering, is he talking about us? 
Yeah, I'm talking about you. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you. And it will be given to someone who actually produces the fruits of the kingdom. And then he says this in 44 to 45. I want you to listen very carefully. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parable. They perceived that he was speaking about them. So they did get it. Now let me tell you, that little, that little scripture right there, the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. For many years, I read that, and I misunderstood it. See, I thought that that first part, that, that let's go back and read that again. The one who falls on this stone will be broken but the one whom the stone falls on will be crushed. See, I thought that it was giving me a call to repentance. It was saying, look, if you'll fall on Jesus, everybody with me? If you'll fall on Him, you'll be broken in the sense that our heart will become broken and contrite and repentant. See, that's what I thought it was asking me to do, but that's not what it's about at all. See, when Jesus is talking about these parables, the time for repentance is over. It's done. He's not calling on them Pharisees and saying, if you'll fall on the Son, if you'll fall on Jesus, you'll be broken in heart. No, that's not what he's talking about at all. This is a parable to those who will not believe. See, 1 Peter 6, 8, 1 Peter chapter 2, 6 through 8 says this. This is Peter saying, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor... It's for you who believe. But for those who don't, do not believe... Now, he's about to explain those who do not believe. The stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. You see, this is both of these things... See, in this life, we tend to stumble over Christ, those who don't believe. They are People come in here, as we said, on Sunday, they hear righteous messages from righteous men, and they won't believe. They go back out into the workforce, and they go back out in their families, and they see family members and friends whose lives have been changed and transformed by the gospel, yet they will not believe. They're stumbling over the Son. They're stumbling over Christ. And to see, the fact is, if you do not believe, if you contend to stumble over Him, See, the Bible tells me when I'm a believer, God takes my feet and does what to them? He sets them on the high places, right? I don't stumble. See, stumbling is for unbelievers. They stumble over Christ. They're offended by Him. They're offended by who He was, by His death, by His, uh, by his lack of education, by whatever it was. They're offended for some reason. And if you continue to reject Him, if you continue to stumble over Him in this life eventually, judgment will come. And that's what it means why it says, but when it falls, it will crush him. You see, you look at these two phrases, and the stone on which someone stumbles is inactive. Jesus is, is, is there, and we, we're, he's, he, we're confronted with him every day. 
We're confronted with Him by the truth of Israel. We're confronted with Him by the righteous message that men, are pre- men and women are preaching. We're confronted with Him by the transformed lives of those around us. And yet er- we continue to stumble and stumble and stumble and stumble and not believe. And eventually, one day, He'll turn out the light. The light is turned out. It's over. And when that happens the stone becomes active and it crushes those that it falls on. And it crushes them to to powder. You see, the first part of this verse expresses the sin of those who will not believe, but the second part is final judgment, it's final punishment. And when it comes, that inevitable judgment comes, it's it's irreversible. Their their salvation is irretrievable. Their, Their souls... Are, 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 it's not recoverable anymore. It's over. Once he's turned out the light, as he did for, for these men. This, this, is a, this is not a good parable. <laughs> right? This is not a parable that makes you feel all warm and fuzzy. It's not meant to. It's not meant to be that. It's a parable of final judgment. Obviously one that we want to avoid at all costs. Next week, as I mentioned, we are drawing to a close on our parables, next week will be our final, uh, final lesson. We're going to talk about the wedding feast in Matthew 22, 1-14. Uh, I think it's a really good parable uh, to end on. It has a great, great lesson uh, for, for everybody. So if you, if you can, be there with us. The week after that, we will pick up with a brand new study that I'm really excited about. I've been working on it for a few weeks now, and um, I'm not going to tell you what it is yet. So uh, you'll have to, I'll, I'll introduce it to you next week, so you'll just have to be surprised. Let's pray. Father.